Welcome to Breaking Down Bits, a conversation about great comedy bits with the comedians who wrote and performed them. Hey, Breaking Down Bits. I'm Brian Gendron. I'm Drew Jordan. Thanks for coming and uh, hanging out with us to talk some comedy today. Uh, also, big shout out to everyone who's been hopping in on that Breaking Down Bits feedback mic on Tuesdays. It's been super fun. A great place to work new jokes, maybe to bring your best jokes to see if you can grab some tags from comics all over the nation, all over the world. Uh, it's really fun. And if you want to hop in, we do it every Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern. All you have to do is shoot us uh, an email to uh, the old Breaking Down Bits at gmail.com. And we'll get you in there. It's a fun time. You should try it out. If you've never done Zoom things or if you just got some new material or maybe your scene doesn't have a ton of open mics back rocking uh, again, hey, hop in, work some material, have a good time. Never done Zoom things. That's very sexual sounding. Uh, but <laughs> I, I got to tell you, man, we have been just kudos to us for being incredibly consistent on that. I mean, it, it is week in, week out that we've been doing these mics and people from all over the world have come and some top talent comes. I've gotten some great advice and tags and, and direction on some of my new material before I bring it to an open mic. So as Drew said, you can email us in at breakingdownbits at gmail.com. You can also send me a message on social media at Breaking Down Bits, and uh, we'll, we'll get you up. Just request to be on the mic. It's Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, runs for an hour. Uh, time well spent, I would think. What do you think, Drew? Yeah, I dig it. I, I tried, I've tried different things. You know, I've tried to bring, like I said, I've tried to bring my best material to see if I can punch it up. I've tried, I do a lot of brand new material there, and it's just a fun way to see, like, hey, is there anything here or not? And it's a way you can kind of workshop. I'm a, I like to write collaboratively, and so it's a fun place to do that. Safe place. We've also had a lot of new people start there. And I, I think that's a great idea, yeah. right? Before you try that first open mic, you know, come come in, feel it out, get some advice from some comics and then and then get out there on, on stage. And it's so, a really nice place. It's like a it's a it's a it's a fun, nice collaborative. It's not no one's going to like crap on your jokes. <laughs> it's gonna, it's it's a fun place to just encourage each other. And the, the other comics are from other cities. So there's like it's sometimes it can be weird to collaborate with people in your scene because there's a competitive stuff there going on, you know? Yeah. And, and there's a networking component to that. Yeah. You know? So now when you, when you go to their city, you can, you can hit them up and you can uh, do some time in, you know, on the road. Well, let's talk about some of our past shows. So breaking down bits.com is where you can get to all of our shows, man. I think we had, we've had 35 episodes now, so we are on our way. The last one we did drew was with Jasmine Alice. I'm going to have you call back to that episode. What you got? Yeah, that was a fun episode. Uh, a lot of people have hit us up in person and on uh, on, the, on social media to be like, hey, this was a great episode. So if you haven't watched it yet, it is is approved by many. I, there was one small little nugget in there. It's it's really, really small, but I really hung on to it. And she she mentioned she looks at her material and thinks about what what is my what is my set? What is my material missing? What is it? What is what do I not talk about that I'd like to, you know? And um, I think that's an interesting thing to, to think about because you want to have you know, for me personally, a lot of my material is about growing up. It's a lot of childhood, a lot of teenage and 20s kind of stuff. And so as I was thinking uh, about that, I was like, oh, you know what? I don't really talk maybe a lot about my current life and my current situation. Maybe I should, you know, try to focus on that for my writing. So maybe maybe you realize you've gotten into like a, a habit of writing about a certain 
type of material or a certain uh, time frame in your life. And so maybe take an inventory of your of your writing, of your content and go, what am I missing? What am I not talking about? And maybe that's a nice prompt to help you like create some new material and, and make sure that you have a wide berth of, is that how you say that word? Uh, a, wide, a wide array of content that will connect with uh, more audience members. I dig it. Uh, actually, that's a good segue. One of the things that she talked about is connecting with different types of audiences. So that was my callback that she was talking about when she came up in the Dallas scene, that she was doing these mics all over town in front of different audiences, different people from different backgrounds. And uh, one of the things that we sort of arrived at in our discussion was that what you can do is you don't change, you show up authentically yourself. But what may change a little bit is how you relate to that audience or how you enter that material, possibly your setups. Right. Uh, and so I, I thought that was really helpful. And she, she attributed that to her fast growth, being able to work all those different rooms. And then of course, take that on tour across the country and having that material work in rooms everywhere. So check that episode out. Uh, Jasmine Ellis, uh, check out all of the episodes, breaking down bits.com is your conduit to everything. And you ready to bring in our guest? Uh, yeah, let's do it. I'd like to, I'd like to shout out the fact that um, I have a new chair. And so if you notice my posture, if you're watching on YouTube, my posture is increased. It's better. Uh, this chair is nice. I'm going to give it a good Amazon review. Just uh, really high on this chair right now. Really excited. Are we sponsored by this chair company? Hello. What are you doing? Uh, it's, it's let's, a... <laughs> let's bring in our guest. Liz Mealy is a New York comedian originally from New Jersey. She started doing stand-up at 16 years old in New York and at 18 was profiled in the New Yorker magazine. At 22, she appeared on Comedy Central's Live at Gotham. You've seen her on Comedy Central's This Week at the Comedy Cellar, NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hulu's Coming to the Stage, and was once profiled in an issue of Runner's World. Her free special, Self-Help Me, is on YouTube now. She's the co-host of Two Non-Doctors Podcast, and her book, Why Cats Are Assholes, is available now. Wow, Liz Mealy, how are you? Good. I noticed Drew's posture. I thought that was really shitty of you because I was like, look at his posture. What? That's a man that respects his body. And you were like, what are you fucking sponsoring? I thought it was extremely dismissive. I'm on your side. So. Yeah. <laughs> I've got terrible postures. This is a big change for me. Also, we like, we've spent the last, what, year and a half in a chair? Like, it's at this point, like, more important than anything you own. I will say, if we want to talk more about chair, I, uh, I've been sitting on a chair with a pillow in it that is broken for the entire pandemic. And I, my abs are killer. Uh, and I'm, I've been, I've been searching for a chair. They're not killer. They're not killer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the chair was broken and I'm searching for the new chair on Amazon trying to find the one and I'm being so picky and I'm like, <laughs> a cardboard box is an upgrade from what I have. I should not be picky. But I, I found I'll, I'll put the review. I'll put it the in the links. <laughs> Please don't. I'll put the chair up if you want to join me uh, in posture. We got. This. You just lost like three followers, but no, I'm proud of you <laughs> and and how you take care of yourself. Well, <laughs> so. We are so happy to have you, Liz. Um, you you stay damn busy. I mean, you have the the podcast now. You have you just had a book that was released. Of course, all of your stand up and your latest special that came out. So we have a lot. To talk about, uh, tell us a bit about your your journey. You've started at sixteen. Goddamn, that's, that's I know. Crazy. I'm like I'm like twelve, so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I haven't aged at all. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I started at 16. I, I grew up in Jersey. So um, I actually came back and forth from the city. Like I, I, I don't even think I did a Jersey gig for like two years because I was told you, you should be in New York. So I would just take the train every weekend into the city. And then I moved to New York for college. So then I was there all the time. Um, I was known for years as this, like, I already still look young and this hairband probably isn't helpful, but, um, uh, also I decorate like a runaway teenager, so that's not helping, uh, age me, but I, I was known for years as the girl that did her homework at the bar. Like I was <laughs> always, cause like, I didn't really want to go to college. It was honestly a fight I had with my dad, but it got me into the city. So I was like, ah, fuck it. And I kind of just always assumed I was, I was going to drop out, but I didn't. And I've, I, I don't know. I, oh, I've always had a very strong work ethic. And so I just worked really hard at both at the same time. So I did that for years. And then, um, I, I don't know. I, it's so funny to, cause I'm 19 years in and to like, look at my path and reverse. Like I had an epiphany like two days ago for like self-esteem building, which is that, I, during the pandemic, I took my first hour, my first album, which is called Emotionally Exhausting. And I just took the raw video and raw audio, like not the thing that was polished and put on my album. And I just threw it at the end of March of 2020 onto YouTube because I was getting ready to sell or try to sell the special I had taped in November of 2019. And I kind of just wanted to show the people like, Hey, I have a fan base. Like you should pay attention to me. So it was more like everybody's home. Everybody's scared. Who knows how long this is going to last. This has been out here for like seven years. Who gives a fuck? And it currently has 1.7 million views and it's old. Some of it's like super dated, but I am, and I'm who I am has progressed beyond that. But I've had a lot of like things I'm proud of in my career. And I've had a lot of like, I wish I had this earlier or I, I wish I could be there and I'm not there yet. And I was walking home the other day and I was like, I wrote an hour when I was like 26, 27, put it out when I was 28. And it currently, even though it took years for people to really see it and be immersed in it, I got one viral video at the time from it, but that whole thing just started to be paid attention to a year ago which is insane. And that's the reason people have watched my current special and, and it's doubled my fan base in a year because of it. It's, it's all kind of crazy because again, all that content was written when I was 26, 27 and put out when I was 28. And now I'm in my mid thirties. And I was like, I knew I was funny. Fuck all these. I knew I was funny, but I, I, you know, I, I had some early successes. Um, uh, we pay attention slightly more to female comics now, but I was young and, um, and it, people did not care for female comics when I started at all. And, but I was memorable because I was so young and because I was, uh, had a lot of tenacity and, um, I worked really hard. So I got passed at most clubs by the time I was 19. So I, I think the first club I was passed at was, can't remember if it was Gotham or Comic Strip, but I was literally passed at all the major clubs. Gotham, Comic Strip, Caroline's. Um, I used to work at Laugh Lounge, which no longer exists. Um, Broadway, like just think like every major club in the city I was pretty much working at. And then I got on TV when I was 22. You know, I had my first TV credit. I was written up in the New Yorker when I was 18. I had a lot of in the beginning and uh, who knows if it was valid. I really just think it was like, who the fuck is this girl? And I was 
always around. Um, and then it all stopped. Like it all, like I auditioned for everything, but I didn't get anything. And I was like probably depressed and, and headed down a very bitter path for quite some years. And honestly, uh, if I didn't have the friends that I had, if I wasn't pushed into therapy, mostly against my will. Um, and if I didn't do a lot of soul searching, I don't know if I would be where I am because it was because I stopped being seen and valued or paid attention to, and I wasn't getting the stuff that I wanted that I created the album that now has 1.7 million views, um, started touring the world because I felt overlooked in, um, in America, um, uh, went to Edinburgh and, and really started to solidify myself internationally and, and, create stuff and produce stuff for myself and understand that I didn't actually need the industry. And that's how I created my second album was from, uh, doing Edinburgh. They don't let you say it the way we want to say it. You always have to throw it away Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> but then, um, coming back and, uh, opening for, for, for friends because I was like financially fucked, but like, but I built up so much. I can do it myself that by the time truly this pandemic happened, I was in a better financial, emotional and career place than any of my friends that took, that took and had the traditional path of just for laughs and Conan and, and, um, uh, getting an agent, getting a manager. Like I did so much myself with such little, um, industry support. I had a lot of supportive friends that, I'm weirdly the person like people have come back around and asked me how I did it when I, and there's a part of me that's like, I didn't want to do it this way. I hated it. I hated it. The whole, I did a women's like a zoom women's thing with like in front of like 200 like female comics. And I was like, I am proud of where I am and I love what I do both comedically and uh, uh, career wise. But I, I don't recommend my way. I didn't want to do it my way. And like, there are things that, I'm glad I did and I will help people with it. But like, it was really hard and I was really sad for a lot of it. And the best thing I've done for myself is uh, heal the emotional aspect that probably got me into stand up. Yes. I love it as a craft, but I clearly wanted validation and to be seen and to be loved. Cause I wasn't uh, experiencing that at home. And I had to heal that so that I can just be a comic as opposed to like, does people like me? Do they want to be a friend? <laughs> like, so it's, I, I, I'm proud of my path and I, I think it makes a great podcast, but it was hard, like really hard. Wow. I, I know Brian is typically the guy who asks all the, all the industry stuff and feel free to not share anything you obviously don't want to, but so I, what you just said got me kind of curious, like, so financially as a comic for newer comics or people kind of getting in the scene, wh where do you, where did you find that you made the most money and, and really made financially made steps? And then what did you do that was maybe not money making, but maybe actually helped you grow and expose an exposure and taking next steps in your career? Would you mind sharing like some of those things? So financially, SiriusXM, putting out my first album and getting it on Sirius um, and self-producing it. Because if you do it with a record label, I'll say this. If you have 
I, I, I will criticize you a little bit, but if you do not want to do any business side of it and or you feel like a, a moron or you think you're not going to do it because it's not important to you, then go do it with a record label. But you are sacrificing so much money when you do that. So I will fight like if I know a friend just needs a little bit of a push, I will be the one to push them because I'm like, you are throwing away money for what took you years of ability to, to write and polish these jokes for a couple thousand dollars worth of work or a couple thousand dollars of your own money. Um, so self-producing my first album and I've self-produced all three of my albums and my last one is an album and special and I get all the money. I get the artists um, and the rights owners and you can make more money as a rights owners. And when a record label um, uh, comes in, they take your rights owning. They either take all of it or they take a large percentage of it. And that's more of the money. So, so mm -hmm. the fact that I self-produced and keep in mind, you need to have a relationship with Sirius XM, which I had. And that's why I had, I didn't like, wasn't, I wasn't like a hundred percent sure it was going to happen, but I was like, I, I, I'm solidified enough. I know enough. And I think I can get it on there. And I, I did. And, and so Sirius XM for the last five years is the reason that I can get off the road when I want to get off the road. I can breathe a little. It's the reason I survived this pandemic. Mm. It's crazy. I have a savings account because of it. And yes, there's some exposure, but I very rarely think my fan base came from it. It is an all financial gain from Sirius XM. And they are awesome. At the beginning of the pandemic, they literally wrote to all the emails that were already, all the comedians that were already in rotation. And we're like, we're going to try to pay, play as much as possible to help you guys out. I love Sirius XM. Nice. The awesome. second financially stabilizing thing actually kind of happened um, sl slightly by accident. And then a little bit on purpose, which is I've been on YouTube 12 years, 15 years, who knows what the fuck I was doing, but I always believed from reading. I've read every single social media book, PR book, article. Sometimes I get it. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I experiment. I do a lot of experimenting because up until maybe like two, three years ago, all these social media books were written for companies. You have a small business. You have a, a, a corporate thing. This is how you get people to buy your shit. There was nothing for artists. So I had to read all that stuff and be like, oh, maybe this will work for selling my album or maybe this will be good to get people to come out to my shows. I had to be the middleman. And so now I kind of help comedians be like, this is how they tell you to do this. But as a comedian, you should actually do this plus this and that'll kind of help you. So I read all those books and I took PR classes and I tried to figure out how do I get people to watch the stuff I'm making because I like what I'm doing, but I can't seem to connect with my audience. So I always, and this is like eight years ago, but I would always record my my sets and audio record or video record with my album. I had somebody paid a hundred bucks for somebody to do the video. That video, again, that has 1.7 million views was a hundred dollars. I didn't even use the good audio. I just threw it out there, but I used clips from it. And then I was always strategic about when I put my material out there. I very rarely put it out before, um, Everything I had was it, it was unlisted and it would be to get auditions and stuff. But once my album was out, my stuff is technically exposed. So I would put out a couple of videos to promote the album. And some of them did well. Some of them nobody cared. But then I, if I did a shitty TV thing, and by shitty, I mean it's not good money and nobody gives a fuck about it. So like Gotham Comedy Live. So I did live at Gotham on Comedy Central when I was 22. But like at 26 or something or 27, I did Gotham comedy live, which was for cable access. And what, what I liked about it, and I had no interest in doing it was that you got 
the video. So you have high production video that you get for free. You can do whatever you want with it and you could say whatever you wanted. So I had jokes that were never going to make it on late night. So I had a joke called feminist sex positions, three minute bit. I'm not a really a graphic sex person, but this was, and it was never going to be there. And I was like, I, I only want to do this to get a good looking video of this bit. And it is my closer. It always murdered. And so I did that. And then right before, or when my album came out, that's how I promoted it. And it ver- and then I did a, took a PR class to figure out how to get it into people's hands. So I sent it to every feminist blog you could think of, because that's where it was going to be. And all it takes is one person to care. And so this blog, um, I think it was like Everyday Feminism, posted it. It went from 6,000 views to 250,000 views. Then, you know, uh, Cosmopolitan picked it up and, and some other feminist thing and some viral video stuff. And it went on Reddit. And next thing you know, it had half a million and then a million. And like, so, and then that's where I started to get more additions and people knew where I was. And like, it, it, it got me a fan base on YouTube so that when I started to post more to YouTube videos, I wasn't in this ether. So that honestly, when I posted last March, my hour, I think maybe I had 20,000 subscribers and now I have 60,000. So you might be like, well, that's not a million and that's whatever. But like somebody to watch just a clip, two minutes is a big ask. Then to have somebody watch an hour is an even bigger ask. And then to have them comment or like or subscribe is another ask. So your every step that a fan takes makes them a stronger fan. So then the next step is getting real money, which is they come out to see a live show or they send it to another person or they buy your merch. But each step is what solidifies a stronger and stronger fan. And 60,000 is the real number. 1, 1.7 million isn't the real number. It's nice. It's shiny. It's helpful, but, and it's made me money, but it's, it's the 60 K and then transferring that into people to be on my mailing list, which is a smaller number. But again, that's a stronger fan base. So for me, um, monetary, that's the original question. Um, um, I make, I've just started to make real money off YouTube. Um, again, it's, it's, it goes up and down. And even with Sirius XM, it goes up and down, but that's not how I make a living. That's, that's, that's a safety net. And I've always treated that kind of royalties as a safety net, but all the fans that I'm making on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, I try to get them on my mailing list because how I want to make my money and, and, and is, is people seeing me live. So my thing that I would say to every comedian that's trying to make this as a living is yes, be, you know, do live shows. That's the fun part, da, 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 da. but find a way to make money when you're not on the road, because even if there's not going to be another pandemic, I've had bad months that I've been like, Oh fuck. I did not. I saved up for December being shitty. Cause December's always shitty or July being shitty. Cause July's always shitty, but I would always have a miscellaneous, like I would have a bad March. And I'm like, how it's women's month. How am I having a bad March? So I was trying to figure out how to save so that I wasn't always in Oh fuck. Oh fuck mode. Or I didn't have to work myself to death. And now I'm beyond that. I'm not only like, I like in this pandemic again, showed me that I'm like, Oh, I cannot work for a year. That's insane. Yeah. 
That's nuts. Well, that, that's that's a lot of info. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's sorry, I'm very wordy. No, that, that's great. You're you are a hustler, and you're smart, and you have one of the rare things that we have in comedy, which is the the business acumen and the business side of it. And it sounds like you're willing to help and share that. Is kind of what I heard. So you have sort of an altruistic side to you because you you know this that most comics are are just inept in in those areas, and uh, there's so many gains that you can have from understanding how this how to get things onto the internet. Uh, understanding how to, to to create these projects on your own and not having to rely on industry to help you so you can take more of the share. I mean, so it's it's just uh, it's really inspiring and, and just some information we haven't had on this show. So so thank you for sharing. And that's helping comics get from the next step, I think, from from just, you know, they've gotten good at stand up. They've gotten good at comedy. And then how do I take this further? And uh, and of course, you mentioned it was a tough ride, like you were depressed for a lot of it. But, you know, now that you're you seem to be on getting to the other side of it, now that you've figured it out and been able to actually do some really neat projects lately. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to Xanax, things are better. Yeah. <laughs> Our sponsor. And then there's just like, you look down, there's pills everywhere. Cheers <laughs> and Xanax. That's the name of our new podcast. Awesome. Um, do uh, Maybe about time to get into writing unless there's more business stuff, Brian. I know you're the... You, you're always the industry mind and always think of, of industry things. Uh, you know, just maybe one quick thing. You're like, I just had this relationship with Sirius. Uh, can you dive into that a little bit? How did, how did that come to be? Because networking is another thing where I think comics are, fall a little bit short or feel inadequate. Um, I've never, I, it took me a really long time to say no to things. Mm. So, so I had a relationship with Sirius XM because, you know, John Fugelsang, who has like this political show, would ask me to be on a pa panel Am I political? Not at all. I tell cat jokes. What am I doing on the show? But he thinks I'm funny. He wanted me to be there. I would prepare for it. And even now, I still like I'm more politically minded now in my mid 30s than I was in my early 20s. But but I would put myself in situations that I felt like I wasn't ready for. And I would like a student study and try to be the best and then figure out where I had value. And he always brought me back. And so, no, I don't have the most unique take on political stuff, but I I can play the idiot well. And the point he has me there, I'm not a political commentary. I'm a comedian. So I would, I would make the jokes and I would be either informed or uninformed and I would make, and so he liked having me be the comic relief. So I've done his show for like 10 years. He's a friend of mine now. Um, any, any podcast, um, any, um, show, whatever. Sometimes I do it and I'd be like, this isn't for me and I'll never do it again. But I learned that from being there. So I do say no more often now because I understand stuff. I know how to kind of do a little bit of research. I have less time. But for the most part, in the beginning, both shows and um, radio, podcasts, whatever, I said yes to everything. And I solidified relationships. You meet other panel people. You People get to know you. Political people might come and discover. Your, there's so many unique benefits to just doing everything, even if it seems like it's outside your circle and your wheelhouse, because that's how you make relationships. And I'm not, I don't drink. I've been drinking five years and I was never a big drinker to begin with. I have social anxiety. I do not know how to hang. I still don't know how to hang. I'm not a fun hang, but I did it through work. All my social, social, um, and connections and my FaceTime has been through work. So I figured out how to make connections with my limitations and not use it as an excuse. I will always put myself in an awkward position to work. I won't always do it to fucking make friends or date. And that's just my hangups and what I'm doing. But I don't think there is an excuse because you can always figure out how to connect with people in some way. 
I, you, you and I are so goddamn similar. That's why I'm excited to have you on the show. I mean, cause I don't, I don't drink, I suck at hanging, but so I just focus on business and lifting up the, we're in Houston, Texas. So I lifting up the Houston scene in any way that I can, giving comics more opportunities, uh, running better shows, all that stuff. Uh, also marathoner. And I talk about my cat. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah so this is great, but, uh, that, that, that's, that's really valid. I do the same thing. Uh, and I think most comics should like, I do a lot of MC gigs, like random, like for philanthropy stuff, like, yeah. you know, do a couple jokes and then MC our thing. You never know to your point, who's going to be in the audience. Who's going to follow you as a result of that. You never know what relationship you might make. You never know what door that's going to open. So you, Oh dude, I get corporate gigs and I get weird stuff because they saw me on a show 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. This is it. It all builds on top of itself and you're making connections the same way that you can burn bridges that are behind you everywhere you go. You can build bridges at the same time everywhere you go. And that's, that's based on, what quality you're doing, who you are as a person and how you stay connected to people. I have always been um, better at the behind the scenes than the in front of scenes uh, because of social anxiety, because of insecurities. And I am still getting better at it and I'm still learning, but I still never think it's an excuse to just show up and be a good person and do your best. And you'll be so surprised how many people are grateful and remember you and think of you years later. Yeah, I drink and I'm a great hang for the record. <laughs> Fuck you in your chair, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> What's up? Uh, let's let's take a, a swing at getting into some writing stuff. Well, we always kind of jump in here with huge open-ended question. Take it wherever you want, share whatever you want. But how does Liz Mealy write comedy? Nobody, nobody wants my procedure. So you have to understand I'm dyslexic. So I've always had to do more work than everybody else. I have a bad memory. I, my brain, I think I have some advantages from learning about dyslexia and, and I've been, I've talked about corporate stuff and, 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 and saying, never saying no, I've done so many dyslexia podcasts and conferences. I did a free conference in Connecticut five years ago. I'm their most viewed video. I think it's at almost 300,000 views and every single week someone discovers me from this 20 minute talk about dyslexia and how it helps my comedy. And it was all because I read this book that these two doctors wrote that I'm obsessed with called the dyslexic advantage. And they're my friends and I love them. And it's, it's, I'm very grateful. So, but being dyslexic, my brain works differently. And there's some things I just naturally do that yes, school was harder, but, but creative thinking is, I think in some ways a little easier, but then also my habits are quite backwards because of it. But it, Mm -hmm. I don't know if my system is for everybody, but it's been helpful. So for me, so, what I will tell every new comic is stop judging your thoughts. Like, just stop. You have a thought, good, bad, ugly, silly, weird, embarrassing. Put it down somewhere. Just write it down. Don't judge it. Even if you might never show it to anybody else, you write it down. And then from there, I try to figure out why I feel this way. Not what's funny about it. Just why do I feel this way? So, you know, um, going, you know, I went through a breakup in uh, September. He emailed me after us not talking for eight months. And I am same level of angry as I was eight months ago. I was like, I healed. I processed. I'm (laughs) God. Therapy has changed me. And then he writes me this email and I'm like, like, I'm just so fucking mad. And he keeps using the word abandoned. And Yes, I broke up with him, but the fuck if I abandoned this man. And so I'm rageful. I'm reading these emails and I am 
filled with rage. And all I write in my notebook is the fuck I abandoned a 37 year old man with a job in an apartment. That's all I write. I'm just, that's my first thought. Are you fucking kidding me? And I'm, I can't even think straight. I'm just angry, but I know (laughs) from me, there's something in that anger. And so, and this is like, literally, I wrote this a week ago. So I'll actually, and it's not even done, but there's, I'm already processing it and doing it on stage. So there's something there. So that's where it goes. Then every girlfriend that's in, that I love and loves me back, I am venting to, because I am angry. I'm fucking angry. I abandoned you. So, you know, this is a Marco Polo to a friend. Are you fucking kidding? I abandoned you. Like, so then, you know, I'm either on the phone with a girlfriend or whatever. They're either laughing or they're just like, oh, my God. But I know enough to know that my friends like my anger and there's something there. And then when I've calmed down, I will process that one line or that one thought. Can you abandon? What is abandoning look like? And I start to ask myself questions. What is abandoning look like? I didn't. I didn't leave you at the mall when you were eight to be raised by Gap employees. You, <laughs> you know, you cannot abandon a 37-year-old man with a job in an apartment. And then where's the next thought go? And the, also, like, when I – so this is me just constructing my thoughts because there will be a setup because there's more setup to that. Why is he saying I abandoned him? I will get to that later. But here I'm just processing, like, the raw, like, are you fucking kidding me? And it was just like, okay, well, you can't, you're not a child, you're an adult. And then it's just like, and then I remember like writing this down and just being so proud of myself. But I was just like, you're good looking and you live across from a Trader Joe's. Stand in the cookie aisle. You will find someone else. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like resources. What is real abandonment? Like, so, so that, so I've actually written the punchline before I've even written the setup. So now that's there. And so okay, how do I explain whether either in the construct of a larger set, which this will be in a larger set, I do have other breakup jokes because this was, we broke up eight months ago, but then I'm working, it's, I'm not doing an hour right now. I'm doing 10 minutes right now in the city. So where can I put this in the set? And then if I put it here in the set, what do I have to say to people to understand? So I have some jokes about just briefly saying that we went through a breakup and about having roommates. And so that will help me construct the setup. And then how do I make the setup interesting or whatever and how how little information can i give to them so i will dump everything i feel to make this a solid setup for what i think is the punchline but um i will take out stuff as well so i will dump all the the information that's probably not even funny and then i'll take out as much as possible and then i'll start to punch up the setup and that's just one way of writing it sometimes it's a full dump and then i start editing immediately and then i start trying to find what's funny but in this case i already knew it was kind of funny or what perspective i wanted sometimes just being on stage they help me weed out what the perspective is like i'm working on a joke about going to the dentist for the first time in five years and i have added, I've made the setup funnier by incorporating it with the stuff I'm already writing. So like, of course I go, you know, I went to the dentist for the first time in five years, I'm back on the market. I was like, let's clean it up, Liz. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and that, that tag or that like tag to a, like uh, a, literally a setup has only come because where it is, where I placed it in the joke. So my process is to dump and edit and, and, and cultivate and then try on stage. But because I've been doing this so long, it's like, well, where am I putting it? What do I want to talk about? What is my perspective with this? And I just keep 
using the recordings of each set to, to trim it down, but then also to shape it and see what people are really interested in or what people are really caring about. What's interesting is with Zoom shows, I've become a little more sillier and a little more less um, driven by what the audience thinks because I didn't really get real reactions. And I actually paid more attention to what I wanted to talk about than being pulled very early by what the audience wanted me to talk about. And I've gotten a little more like, I can't even know what the word is, just like a, like a bit sillier and weirder. And some of my punchlines don't hit as hard, but they're, they're jo- memorable jokes. And I've played around with both the like hit them in the face, punchline, 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 but then also like go on weird tangents or take you on a weird journey or paint a weird picture because that was what was fun for me when I wasn't getting laughs is if I'm not going to get a laugh, I'll talk about whatever the fuck I want to talk about. I edit a lot. I, I, so this is where the dyslexia comes in. I write, I edit on the page. I try, I listen, I transcribe, I edit again. I rewrite, try the new version, transcribe, edit, fucking write it again. And I do that until it's done. I love that process. And, and, and what I've noticed from recording my sets and doing all the editing myself, this is something I would only have learned from putting stuff online. Apparently my equilibrium, like where is two and a half minutes. All my jokes somehow magically, I don't, that's not, I don't go, it's not done until it's two and a half minutes. I'm like, oh my God, almost all my jokes are two and a half minutes. It's very creepy. I've only noticed it in the last two years. <laughs> that's in, you'd see that on like a track list on Spotify, like 230, Yeah. I love that process. Um, I think that actually gives, it makes it more tangible, I think. Because I think we always are writing jokes and trying them on stage. And if you're, you know, if we're doing well, we're going back and listening to our sets and hearing what hit, what didn't, what you liked, what you didn't. But that extra step to to have what you wrote, try, edit, and then try that, transcribe. And you're just, it's a great way to whittle down. Because like we always miss those little, the smaller things, I guess, that we say sometimes. And and because we all know sometimes you tell a joke and it, it kills. And the next time you tell a joke, it, nothing. Yeah. And you're always wondering, what are those small things? But if you transcribe it, then you are catching every small shift, every word, everything is being captured and you're working with that. And I, it, it's a lot of work, but it sounds like a wonderful process. Well, you learn that like, okay, I over explain this line. So I don't need that word. So you'll take it out. And then you realize they actually did need that information. Maybe not the long version of it, but they, you said two things and you're like, they don't really need that second thing. And they did though. Like they needed that second thing. Like I have this new joke where I basically talk about an ex getting married and how, why it was upsetting to me, but then realizing what I think of exes, which is, I say, I realize I think exes are lifeboats that are there just in case. (laughs) So then I pull back. So that's what I say. So it doesn't matter if that gets a laugh or not, because that is technically still part of the setup. If you start laughing, maybe you get it. But if you don't get it, then I give an analogy to bring you even further in. So I go, X's are lifeboats that are there just in case. So if I'm the Titanic (laughs) and the fear of dying alone is the iceberg, (laughs) then every X is a lifeboat that's there just in case. So now you get more people laughing because I've explained what that means even more deep. And then I explain it again another way. So I'd be like, so then I'll be like, um, I don't, I don't, I don't want, what do I say? All exes are lifeboats that are just in case. I don't want to use them. 
it's a bad day if I use him. But I'd rather use him than a piece of driftwood I've never had sex with. So now they're seeing the full analogy of a lifeboat. Nobody wants to use a lifeboat. Things are bad if you're using this lifeboat. It's the worst day of your life if you are in the lifeboat. The lifeboat is a just-in-case. But if my option is some dude on Tinder that I know nothing about or the problems I've had before and I know everything about, I'm going to sleep with my problems I know about. Yeah. And that's what it is. I'd rather have a sturdy boat that's literally there just in case than a fucking piece of driftwood that's never held me before. <laughs> and so you, you, but I say, I'm technically saying the same thing over and over again. And some people are there already. I've done shows where they're laughing at what is technically a premise. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that are laughing at the second or the first punchline. And then I have people laughing at every single punchline. And when it's an okay audience, they only laughed at the driftwood. And then I have a tag that goes after that. But a great audience is with me the entire time. The safety net that I bring for myself is that I make sure that it always gets a laugh, even if it's the last line. And that's where I think the reason my jokes are two and a half minutes, maybe it's insecurity, but I was like, I'm never going to leave them not thinking I'm funny because I know what I'm writing is smart and interesting and funny, but you might not be smart enough to know that what I'm writing is smart and interesting and funny, but I will make you know. And that, and I, I just think, honestly, my life and career being so hard has made me have to prove myself with every single joke, and it's now become my style. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, Sorry, I yelled at you guys. <laughs> Very aggressive. I'm like pointing. I'm like, no. do your homework. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great, that's a great um, thing for comics to think about. Like, yeah, you can it's always a balance of how much information they need. And yeah, you, you're building in a safety net to go like, okay, just in case for the dumb people, for the drunk people, for the people who are kind of talking for a little bit during that first, I'm going to give them a couple options to jump on this train. So we all get to the station. You know, we all, we're all going to get to a laugh at the end of it, even if you weren't, because we've all done shows where people are drunk, not paying attention, the bar shows, and if you just were to do that joke with just the setup and punch and move on, some people might miss it. And so that's a great strategy to make sure everyone is on board. Yeah. The lifeboat. I, I was going to make one comment that the, uh, the, the don't judge your thoughts. It's not a writing prompt, but it's a, it's a, it's allowing yourself the space to put down some things that could lead to some really uh, authentically you, what you're feeling. It, it allows you to get to those spaces. And then I like the idea of asking questions. So I really like how you got into how you'd start and develop your bits. I think that's really helpful. In addition to your awesome process. I mean, I, I'm, uh, you, 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 it sounds like I, I can tell you stick to it. You're committed to it. And uh, it's just, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an admiration of, of how you approach this. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go back and listen to this podcast right after we finish, just so I can like reprocess your process, because I think that is a way that could work for me, but it's a little extra work, but I feel like that that's got to pay off. It's got to be, uh, it's got to work. I mean, it clearly does. Yeah. And at, so, so there's certain questions that I always ask myself and that's the best way to expand a joke or clarify a joke is, well, why do I feel this way? Or what would have been a better answer for him to say to me? What did I want to hear? Like I have all these kind of, and some of it's from therapy. Some of it's from being a good friend. Some of it's, um, 
um, just knowing how to talk to myself because I am myself. But then what's even better is if I'm asking for a friend to help me, I'll go to, I don't know if you know, like Adrian Appalucci or Carmen Lynch. They're really like, those are my two best friends. Those are my go-to girls. So if I'm stuck on a joke, I'm like, hey, I'm here, but there needs to be something more, whatever. They will either ask me questions. Like sometimes they might be like, hey, I have an idea, but more likely they'll be like, well, what did you want to hear from him? Oh, I didn't think about that. You know what I mean? Like, I remember I had this bit from my first album about putting my feet on the subway chair and a cop came on and kicked my feet off. And I was like, what the fuck? That's not one of the unspoken rules of the train. And I couldn't get past that part. And I remember Adrian goes, well, what are the unspoken rules of the train? And it unlocked the next minute of the joke just because it was I was just so like, that's fucking unfair. And he knows it's unfair. And he goes, well, what are, and so that's where the next punchline came, which brought me to the next, like she unlocked a layer of my thought process that I couldn't do myself. So a real good writing buddy or, or even a good friend is just somebody that asks you a question for some reason that you can't get to yourself, but I don't really need tags or, you know, they're helpful and we've helped each other in that way. And we'll joke and we have fun with it. But sometimes it's just asking a question because that's what, moves you to the next level that's that's how you get close to somebody's asking them questions so that's also how you're going to get to know your thought process better yeah Oof, what a great tip always ask more questions and i forgot who we had on that kind of talked about it almost like uh the news you know if you if you've done any pr writing the who what when where why how to what extent kind of thing um those are all great questions to throw at your jokes to be like you know and i love the question you know why did i why do i feel like that that's probably the most powerful question to, to me that's really resonating because I'm like, oh, that, because that sometimes it's hard to write with emotion. Uh, and it feels like the jokes that you're emotionally attached to are the ones that really work and the ones that you perform well. And so sometimes you write a joke and it, you just, you know, there's not really any heart in it. And if you ask yourself, why do I feel like this? It injects that emotion into the story and into the joke. So I love that. Yeah. So next question we always ask is, uh, and Drew, that was Louis Katz, by the way, that you're, you're thinking of. Uh, next question. Yeah, he's great. He's going to be in Houston tomorrow on our show. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the next question we ask is, how do you prepare for a set? Do you, do you set list person? I, I got to imagine. It sounds like I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm out. very written. So um, I, in my phone, like, let's say, you know, tonight I have a bunch of 15 minute city spots. Um, I will have what is currently what I'm working on. And I'll just interject new stuff into that. Um, and that just, things just get kept pushed down or moved around in that 15 minute set. Then clearly if I do an hour, I have my set list. And again, things get pushed. Like it's a little weird right now because normally I'm doing an hour every weekend and it's just not that consistent. Like April, I did like three weekends. May, I did, honestly, I did mostly showcase stuff. June, I did one weekend, two shows. July, I'm back to seeing a little normal. August, I quit comedy, apparently. And then <laughs> September, it starts to look a bit normal. But now what I, because I had these gaps that weren't there before, I have my hour, then a month goes by, I reevaluate the hour. Is this, have I added anything? Okay, I've added, do I want to put anything else new? If, if it's starting to be more than an hour, what do I want to lose? What do I want to not do? Um, if I have, and then what I've been doing in front of my fans or clubs that I'm comfortable with is I'll do about 50 minutes. And then because they're my fans, I'll be like, can I try some stuff that's like kind of not ready? And they'll be like, yeah. And so then I'll have at least three jokes that some of them are like, Ugh! and some of them are like, I'm, 
I'm not like, I think this is where it's going, but I want to try these new ideas because now I have people that already like me. Let's see. It feels a little bit safer. And then I'll close out with stuff. That's like my closer and stuff that I know works. So, but I always have a set list. Um, I've, I, I like order. I like having certain chunks be together, but I can get distracted by the audience. I don't want to, I want to do what I want to do, but I can, I mostly work in chunks. So this is a chunk about a breakup. This is a chunk about the pandemic. This is a chunk about my mom and I can move it around, but, uh, but I most likely don't move in the, the chunks don't, the chunks move around, but the stuff in the chunks don't usually move. They go in that order. Yeah. I like that too. Like I, I'm, I'm have the worst memory ever. And I have like the terrible crutch of like keeping my set list on my phone, on the, on the, on the stool all the time and just checking it when I don't need to. Um, but uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like a lot of my jokes and I don't know if other people feel like this, like the order matters so much. I don't want to reveal this till I reveal this. And then this helps me set up this next thing. And so the order of the jokes is, su is super important depending when I'm revealing a lot of like childhood and family and my history kind of jokes, you know, so. It, yeah. it, it, to me, it's like reading the back of the book before you read the beginning. It's just like, yeah, you might understand some stuff, but that's not how it was meant to be read. Like yeah. I just, in my mind, I'm slowly having them understand my thought process and who I am as a person, as well as details, so that there's certain jokes that cannot be earlier. I've just learned that they're too much. Like, I have some really dark jokes about child abuse. I cannot do those earlier. You have to know me, like me, even know my mom and like my mom. So then when I say my mom, you know, wasn't nice, you know that A, I'm not judging her, and B, this you can laugh this is okay to laugh so like there's certain stuff that like it, it it is important and i've also like fucked myself up while i'll do an ad lib and i was like fuck that ad lib is actually going to cut into that joke in yeah. four minutes and it's not going to mm -hmm. pop as hard because i said that yeah. and like so even i'm a little aware that i've i've ruined it by just some, like something inspires me from the audience and then I say something that's very me and it's so me that I'm like, fuck, of course it's me. That's like almost half the punchline. <laughs> so it's like, I, I, I think order is so important. And sometimes when comics are struggling, I'm like, well, you're fucking talking in depth about your boyfriend and I don't even know anything about you. I don't give a fuck about your boyfriend. I need to know about you to understand why that is triggering that your boyfriend is doing that. Yeah. So before we get into the clip uh, and, and get into that, do you have any last minute things that you do before you step on stage? Any last minute little rituals or preparation that maybe like five, 10 minutes before you step on stage, what are you doing? Five, 10 minutes before um, I'm probably looking at my set list and I put little asterisks by my new jokes and I'm just kind of reminding myself, okay, after, after this bit, I'm going to do dentist or, you know, depending on how good this audience is, I'm going to either close with sharks or sharks is going to be second to last. Like I have a, basically a game plan of if they love me, this is my ideal set. If they don't love me, this is the route I'm going to go. And then if they hate me, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. And that's going to be all the asterisks. That's going to be whatever. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Fuck you guys. So I have like almost a couple of game plans and I try not to look at my set list. Clearly with the pandemic, I've been a little more attached to it, but I also always keep it on my phone. It's always there so that if I do get frazzled, it's there and who, nobody gives a fuck. As long as you're not reading off your phone, nobody cares. Um, and then I have tricks, by the way, which is I now have a bit where I need a piece of paper or I don't need a piece of paper, but it works with I'm, I'm 
the whole point is that I have things written down. I have it memorized, but, but, um, I have it in a place mid set so that if, especially when I went back, if I don't know where I am, I'm not reading it. I'm like, Oh yeah. After this bit of sharks. Okay. Yeah. So, and it's just like a little trick where like, I don't technically need it. It helps to have it. And then I also get to peek literally peek at my set list. I love that idea of having a plan, a plan B plan C for your set, depending on how the audience is. That's an awesome idea. And just being the forethought to know not every, not every audience is going to love you. Not every set's going to go as planned. And to not have to figure that out on the fly, to spend some time thinking about it even before you go to the show, that's really smart. Yeah. Also, like having those tricks where you can get back to this, like when you go to hump the stool for all of your stool humping jokes, yeah, true. Yeah. You can yeah. you just have the set list right there. Take a quick a big stool humper, I find. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Quick check. Stools don't do it for me, but stools. Yeah, no. It's that. Well, let's go ahead and take a clip. It's, it's from uh, Self Help Me, which was, the, like you mentioned, uh, the special release last year. Just tell us a, a minute where, where this was recorded, things about that day, where you got the big L-I-Z, all that stuff. And where um, is it now? Uh, oh, if you watched the whole special, you'd know where it is. Oh, I missed it. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, uh, so it's uh, I taped it at Subculture. It's a theater, but um, UCB... Um, when they lost their East Village venue, started using Subculture. Beautiful. They've already they've taped other specials there. It's small. It's like 200 people, uh, seats 200 people. So I did two shows there. Um, it, a little more expensive, but it was the aesthetic and it had the right light. Everything was already kind of set up as opposed to um, clubs. It would have been more money to put stuff in. And I wanted to have, like, I like small theaters. So I did it there um, in November of 2019. Um you know, again, I self-produced it. I didn't have a lot of money. So I was trying to look for interesting ways to kind of bring me and uh, just have it a little more um, manicured than just a background. And I found these big cardboard, they're cardboard, but they actually look pretty good. These big cardboard letters. I think they were like 30 bucks each, but I had them in my room or in my living room for months because we had to test it to see what it looks like. I brought them on, like we brought the L and brought the L back on the subway when we were testing it. Um, I drove them to my venue. I had to walk down the street with these big things. So I told my roommate who was one of the cameramen, I was like, when we're done, can we destroy them? I think that would be a great like credit reel is me destroying my name. <laughs> so I really love my credits. I'm like most proud of cause it, and then my little sister is a, um, a singer songwriter. So her song is playing both in my intro and in the background. So it almost kind of has a music video vibe where she's singing and I'm, and it's just, the song is called sad song. So that's my vibe is I write sad jokes. So it's me destroying these letters on the side of a highway um, and just jumping on them and just like fucking rolling around and just like being crazy. And I just and kicking the shit out of it. And that's kind of how I feel. I process my emotions. God damn! How did I miss that? I gotta go. I gotta go watch the end of this now. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna watch. yeah. All right. Cool. Let's let's roll the clip. I kind of know where some of this anger comes from. I'm originally from New Jersey, so I've always been trash. <laughs> I know. Those are just facts, and you just have to own it. Um, but I, I, I've been in New York for 15 years now, and there's just not enough room to grow a heart. So. 
I'm not always the best version of myself. I was in a CVS a couple of months ago, more like around the holidays, just picking up regular items, toilet paper, bar of soap, no basket, just holding my items. I'm at the front of the line and this older lady comes up to me and she's just holding a greeting card. She's like, I just have this card. I'm in a rush. Can I cut in front of you? I was like, totally fine. But there's still a guy being helped at the counter. So I'm playing a game on my phone and she's just kind of awkwardly standing next to me. And finally she turns to me and she goes, my best friend's mother died. And I was like, I'm sorry to hear that. And she goes, yeah, she died during the holidays. And you know how that is. She always associates the death of her mother with the holidays. It's going to ruin the holidays for the rest of her life. And I was like, sure. <laughs> she goes, you know, when my own mother died. And I was like, what the fuck? Okay, I agreed to let you cut in line, but I didn't agree to this sadness open mic that you're starting. But dude, there are 8 million people in this city. This my alone time. <laughs> I'm clearly playing a game on my phone, trying to win it so that I can intrinsically know that I am smarter than my boyfriend. Ruining this moment. I'm not saying any of that because I am a really nice person. What I did do is I called my best friend and I just ranted the whole way home. And she was an asshole about it. She's like, dude, she's old. You know, with old people, they start to lose people in their life. Their health starts to fade. And really, you were doing a service for your community. And I was like, first of all, I said older. I didn't say old. She was like 55 or 90. She was black. I don't know. <laughs> so she does have a friend. She said her best friend's mother died. She has one friend. I don't have to tell you, greedy bitch. You only get one friend. You get one friend and a husband that kind of listens to you. That's all you get in life. You don't get extra friends. The point of the story is I'm on my phone too much. It's obvious. I'm a millennial. I'm constantly on my phone. My dad's always giving me shit about it. He's like, your generation. I was like, don't give me that your generation shit because I'm of the generation that's not actually murdering people because we're too busy on our phones. Yeah, did you know this? The number of serial killers have gone down since the prevalence of smartphones. Sounds like a real fact, doesn't it? <laughs> it's not. I made it up. It doesn't matter. All that matters is if I'm on the subway and I see a dude not on his phone, I assume he's a serial killer, and that's how I've stayed alive all these years. <laughs> all I'm saying is we all remember 10 years ago when we weren't constantly on our phones, and it was a horrible existence. Why do I have to be present for all these boring moments? The bank line, there's no reason I need to be present for the bank line. And there's always some person making that experience worse. There's always some lady that's like counting quarters in front of the bank teller. Ten years ago, I hated that lady. I plotted that lady's death. I don't do that anymore. Now I see quarter lady, I get on my phone. I open Instagram. I start liking cat pictures. Get the blood pressure down. <laughs> Ten minutes go by, quarter lady passes me. I whisper, grumpy cat saved your life. <laughs> yeah, maybe give her a follow. You almost die, bitch. <laughs> I feel like it needs to be mentioned that Grumpy Cat died this year. I know, dude, I've been single-handedly breaking that news across the country. I don't know why everyone's not aware of it. Oh, I mean, I know we're all shook. Thank you for coming out. Um, I loved her. I really did. You, most of you don't even know it was her. I loved her. I, I loved her so I'm wearing her socks right now. I have all her merchandise. I, um... I truly did. I found out she died, and I was like, I couldn't handle it. I went and researched how she died. This is how she died. 
complications to a UTI. It's a multi-million dollar cat. Get it some cranberry juice. <laughs> Every woman in here's had a UTI. We figured it out. You're a bad cat, mom. You shouldn't be allowed to have any multi-million dollar cats. <sighs> God rest her soul, grumpy cat forever. <laughs> oh man, I forgot about grumpy cat. Rest rest her soul. <laughs> Yeah. Oh gosh. Just the transitions there were so seamless. Like you went from the grocery store, you're on your phone too much and why that's a good thing and serial killers. And then seamlessly into grumpy cat, you can tell that your, your writing and your processing is so on point. Uh, I, I, my industry, uh, other what my real job is radio and we work so hard on creating transitions to keep people engaged. So, you put a sweeper between two songs, you make sure it over like overlaps perfectly so you don't lose the attention. And I think that's kind of what you did perfectly there. Like you never gave the audience a chance to not be engaged with you because you just kept the transitions nice. So that's just that's just really sharp writing and something that I think we could all aspire to do better. And I think we all learn I'm an uninformed bitch. Like it's the theme. <laughs> like if you're gonna put a title on it, is like this girl is on her phone learning nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I had another clip, but it didn't, it didn't involve the sort of the angry break, meltdown, breakdown, what do we want to call? But it, it, it's just, you, you do that on stage and it's just, it's so funny. It's so emotionally driven. And it just, to me, it, it draws you into that bit and really draws us into your experience and, and kind of relates it to our own experiences, I think. Well, it's also, I think everybody's kind of gone through that, which is like, you do something nice, you're patting yourself on the back. You're like, I let an old lady get in front of me. Like I'm such a good person. And then they want something more from you and you immediately feel like your boundaries. And it seems like it's small. She's just telling you about her friend's mom dying. But to me, I'm like so sensitive to people like taking more and also believing that that's not a take. I now have to pretend to be sad for a woman like three degrees away that I don't give a fuck about. Like you already got what you wanted. Why do you want more? Like, and so it's, it's playing into this, like that joke is about 36 years of Liz always doing the right thing and it never being enough. And now I have this small situation. It might seem blown out of proportion, but I think everybody's kind of there where they're like, Hey, uh, we have a meeting tomorrow. Is it okay if you show up five minutes early? Yeah, of course I'll show up five minutes early. Hey, could you bring snacks? Oh yeah, I'll bring them when I come. Hey, nobody else can make the meeting, but can you just show up and be there for, what the fuck? Why is it always me? Like, and that's, I'm so sensitive to like being the yes man and the people pleaser that I'm starting clearly to put those boundaries down. But whenever they're impeded on, I have that kind of emotion. And of course I was super nice. I'm listening, but I'm like, He's so lucky that I'm in therapy. This lady doesn't even know how lucky she is that I'm in therapy because I have blown up at strangers before. I have been a crazy person and I've worked really hard to not be a crazy person, but that crazy person is still inside me. And that's the other thing is that like some of these jokes, like that joke is full fantasy. That's that it happened. But then everything after it happening is what I wish I said, you know, how I wish I handled it why I feel the way I feel it. That is all that is a 10 second experience. That is a three minute bit. And it sounds like it came from the place where this happened. Why did I feel so pissed about it? I was writing the joke in line because I was laughing because I felt my anger. I was like, Oh my God, I fucking hate this lady. 
I fucking hate her. So I'm writing down in the, as she's being checked out this thing. And then of course I called my friend because whenever I'm angry, I'm like, so I, I knew I had to call back my friend anyway. So I was kind of telling her about this thing and she was sticking up for her. And I was like, fuck you, Ashley. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, fuck you. So like, so now I'm doubly angry and like clearly playful angry. I love Ashley, but like, it was, it was one of those things that like, it started to write itself because I knew in the moment to watch, don't judge your thoughts. But I already knew like, Liz, you're crazy. Fucking you're mad at an old lady sharing sadness. Jesus. (laughs) So I already knew to write it down. And then just through just being a friend, it, it got pulled out more because I share my life with my friends. And then it just started to turn into, well, why am I even on my phone? Like, why is it so important for me to be on my phone? And, and everybody, and then there's the contrarian, everybody says the phone is negative, but actually I haven't murdered anybody because of this. I haven't yelled at people in 10 years because of my iPhone. Yes, I've lost memories, but I'm a better person. It's a pacifier. I'm a better person because of this phone. And so that's where the layers come, where it's it's both about the anger of boundary pushing and being a people pleaser, but also the thing that's being criticized and the thing that I want to be doing right now is the reason I'm a good person. And that needs to be talked about. And so that's where the layers kind of come in. And that joke took a long time to like, I remember, I remember each place I got stuck at with that joke. Yeah, how did when it came together? Was that something? Were those? Did it really just start with the you know grocery store experience, and that's when you began the whole bit? Or were these? Did you have some of that material already, and you like saw and you found the connection points to make it all to get from grocery store to Grumpy Cat? Um. So the so grocery store and and um my friend not sticking up for me that was there, and that's where it started. The cell phones being a pacifier came from probably the question of, well, you're on your phone. Why is that important to you? Well, this because this is New York City. This is my only alone time. So both in writing the punchline for that that moment and then um, it could have been done there. But in my mind, I wanted to show that, like, I'm wrong. And that's where I bring my friend in. my friend's sticking up for this old lady. But then I want to say, but she's wrong. And that's where I start to show that, like, I actually handled it right. You're saying I'm a bad person for even thinking it, but I'm actually a good person because I didn't murder her. And this is why I didn't murder her because of phones. And everybody's going to say, well, phones are ruining our generation. Are they? We're all not getting murdered because of phones. And then from there, I bring out an exposure to me, which is that you know, I bring it back to lines, which is the bank line, but I show, and this is very real. I remember I was in this really long bank line and I'm not even joking. This woman is like counting quarters and I'm just looking at my phone and what, and I've set up my Instagram that it's mostly animals. It's like animals and like three of my friends. I, you know, a baby slips in, I, I handle it, but it's mostly <laughs> fucking cats. Fall, you know what I mean? It's cats falling off decks. I love it. And so... To me, Grumpy Cat really came out of the fact that that's what people know. But, you know, I'm looking at Bodega Cats, much better account. Um, But (laughs) Grumpy Cat, I did know, and it was in the back of my mind, if I'm going to bring her up, what do I know about Grumpy Cat? And that's that she died from a UTI. And I remembered being angry about that because it's like, are you fucking kidding me? And so that's when I do my bad science, which is give her, you know, give her cranberry juice. But like, it it just kind of builds like it. And they all took time to like, figure out where they all kind of connected yeah that's awesome yeah i think i, I mean yeah I, th- those transitions are so seamless 
uh, and you got through it. It seems like it did. It wasn't too much bunch of pieces put together, but something that was actually maybe kind of constructed kind of in that way in such a, in that kind of order or whatever. Each the solving of a problem with a punchline brought up another I wouldn't say problem, but brought up another interesting idea. And that interesting idea I wanted to solve and I wanted to flesh out more because I've already now the punchline is set up for a new setup. So really, it's my curiosity that pulled me. Yeah, it sounds like the key to your writing might be, yeah, your curiosity and your question asking. And that's kind of what what that's the driving force in your writing is just being constantly curious about why you feel a way, why someone else did something and just and trying to solve that answer, that question, why? Yeah. And being, being present emotionally. I love, I remember I asked John Caparulo this cause he his a lot of his stuff comes from frustration. And I was like, in the moment, do you know that these are going to be bits or can you feel it? And you were uh, able to be present in that moment. And then that's what led you down, down the path to writing this, these, you know, this material. Uh, I, honestly, like there's a lot of people that believe like, you know, therapy or taking medication. I'm not on medication, but I have tons of comedian friends that are, but like, they think these things are going to hinder you. And it's like, a, I'm a better person. I'm happier. I'm healthier because of therapy. But also, I now know, like a basic trait of therapy is anger isn't anger. Anger is usually hurt. So I'm a very angry person. I'm also the type, I'm a girl and 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 I cry when I'm angry. I used to hate it. I still hate it, honestly. But I it so once I understood that anger is pain, I go, well, then the emotion isn't anger. It's actually pain. So what? why is this painful? Why is it painful that an old lady is sharing sadness with me? Ooh. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And that's when you start to realize that this is boundary pushing, pushing. I was the therapist for my parents. My parents shared things with me I should not know. And that still haunt me and frustrate me and have hurt my relationships today because they told a child stuff that a child wasn't supposed to know. So here is a stranger telling me shit that I don't need to know that is not my business to know. And I'm mad about it because of my history. And that's where you start to like, see how therapy and reading and taking care of yourself and your emotions can take you to a different path than most people, because you might be like, what a stupid bitch. I'm not your friend. That's not what it's about. It's about boundary pushing. It's about, I gave you an inch and you tried to take a mile and that miles for your best friend, your best friend should hear about that. Not me. And that's where it, that's where like I my healing has made me a stronger comic. I must I must want to uh, like Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Me and Drew watch Self Help Me with you and just go through all your bits. There's so much depth. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, yeah. Well, let's do our, our final uh, segment. It's a little weird, so bear with me. I'm gonna play a graphic. Here it goes. Keep saying I'm going to change it. Never do. Okay. So <laughs> here's how it goes, Liz. Uh, this is your last laugh. Okay. This is the the joke that'll be, or it can be anything that's going to be written on your tombstone, preferably funny. It could be your joke, somebody else's joke or something else about cats. I'm sure. Uh, but uh, what would you have on your tombstone? I might have to explain it, sure. but it's, it's never been a joke I've done on stage. It's just, it exemplifies my anxiety. And all it is, is did I ever get that woman her salad? <laughs> and it's because I, it was the reason I couldn't be a waitress. 
<laughs> I would I would fucking work and then I would go home. It's actually the reason I became a pothead for years is because I was so much anxiety that I would go home and I'm like, oh my God, did I ever get that woman her salad? Same. <laughs> so it's just like, here it is. I'm a comedian. I've been a comedian for 20 years, but all I can think about is when I was like 19 and I'm like, I let down so many people. <laughs> There's people still waiting for ketchup somewhere. <laughs> <There, seriously. laughs> oh man. We had the same, I mean, I had the same experience. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, okay. Tell people where they can find, I got your, I'm going to put your website up here. That's Millie.com. seems like you keep it up to date pretty good. Uh, yeah. So, um, I'm starting to tour. I'm still adding dates, so it's not full, but, um, I'm, I'm touring. So all my tour dates, all tickets and stuff like that is on my website. Um, I have bits and stuff on all the social media, which is at Liz Mealy. Um, I have two free hours, um, on YouTube. And then I have another hour that's like an in-between hour. That's an album that you can buy or stream. Um, I have a book called why cats are assholes if you like cats or don't like cats <laughs> or if you think your cat should read and uh, my podcast with a very funny comedian my best friend maria shahada is called two non-doctors and yeah uh, and it's um where we talk about um honestly a lot of mental stuff but a, a lot of physical stuff uh with little to no accuracy because <laughs> <laughs> you have google i listened to yep. listen to part of one today yeah yeah well, good stuff. Liz Mealy, we are just such a great talk with you. Uh, You're clearly uh, a master of the craft, and uh, we really appreciate you spending time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I don't know if I'm allowed to plug another club, but I'll be Please, please do it. I'll be at the secret group. Um, I don't even know when. September. September? We love September. the secret group. We'll see you over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. September somewhere. But yeah, yeah I'll see you guys in person, and thank you for having me. You will. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Breaking Down Bits. You can keep in touch or get more when you follow at Breaking Down Bits on social media. Visit the website BreakingDownBits.com or shoot us an email at BreakingDownBits at gmail.com.